let's go ahead and continue our series on using the law lawfully. Looking at all the Old Testament commands, studying them, seeing what they actually meant to the Jews, and then seeing if they apply, and if they do, how they apply uh, to us as New Testament Gentile believers. So today we're continuing in the uh, part about the establishment of government, and in particular we're going to look at establishing the cities of refuge. So if you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. look at the cities of refuge, what they were, what their purpose was, and see whether or not they have any application to us today as Gentiles. Deuteronomy chapter 19. <clears throat> this one was a, a lot of fun to study for me. I've, uh, I've actually had many debates with people about the, the cities of refuge and, and how the Jews handled uh, murder and manslaughter and, and uh, all their different homicide laws. And it's, a, it's a very interesting study. We're, we're just going to skim the surface of it today, but if you ever get a chance to go really in-depth into all the different commands having to do with killing and when killing is allowed, when killing is not allowed, when vengeance is allowed and when it's not allowed and you know it's it's a very uh, interesting study throughout the scripture and the Old Testament laws for homicide were just as if not more complex uh, than our laws here in in America today it was not just a simple you know thou shalt not kill it's a very complex system of laws for homicides but anyway we'll just look at the the cities of refuge a little bit of an overview today uh, so first we're going to see that the Jews were commanded to establish places where anyone who killed a man could flee for refuge. So Deuteronomy 19, verse 1 through 3. When the Lord thy God hath cut off the nations whose land the Lord thy God giveth thee, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their cities and in their houses, thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Thou shalt prepare thee away, and divide the coast of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to inherit into three parts, that every slayer may flee thither. And just in those three verses, there is a whole lot that's packed into there. Um, for example, you've got the establishment of the cities of refuge to begin with, but you, you, verse number three, you've also got, Thou shalt prepare a way. It, the Jews were required to build a highway system uh, and started out with three cities, and then God said, Later on, when you get bigger, make it three more cities to be six cities. So for those six cities, they were to have a highway system connecting those six cities to all the major cities uh, throughout Israel, specifically so that people could flee to the cities of refuge if they killed someone. Uh, and so you have justification for highway systems. You have a division of the coast of that land. Uh, so here you have jurisdictions set up for the different courts, uh, dividing the land up into various jurisdictions. I mean, there's a whole lot that's... That's built into this, uh, but but what we see, you know, overall here is that they're to create these cities of refuge. And we're going to look also in Numbers chapter 35, and we're going to go back and forth a lot between Deuteronomy 19 and Numbers 35 because those are the two passages that deal primarily with the cities of refuge. So Numbers 35 and verse number 15. 
And like I said, started out with three, and then God said, as you grow, you're going to want to add three more and make it six. So in Numbers 35, the statement is six. Verse 15, these six cities shall be a refuge both for the children of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that everyone that killeth any person unawares may flee thither. And it's interesting to note, you have strangers and sojourners. Strangers are uh, foreign immigrants. The sojourners are foreigners who just happen to be passing through. They're foreign travelers. So the strangers are the foreigners that have come and they've actually made a home. Uh, There's not citizens. They're they're there with a, a visa or something like we would say. And then the sojourners are just the tourists. They're traveling through and, and happen to be past their land. Even for them, they had the same law regarding the cities of refuge and homicide. Okay, and then uh, Numbers 21, or sorry, not Numbers 21, Exodus 21 also speaks of this. Uh, Exodus 21, verse number 12. Exodus 21, 12. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall surely be put to death. And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither, whither he shall flee. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. Okay, and so here we have in verse 13 of this section in Exodus 21 that uh, God would appoint them a place where people could flee if they killed a man, but it was an accident. And that's going to be the cities of refuge. So we see, first of all, the Jews are commanded to establish these places where anyone who killed a man could flee for a refuge. And then next we can see the purpose. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 19 and verse number 4. We can see the purpose was to prevent those that were guilty of just manslaughter or accidental homicide from receiving the same death penalty that was prescribed against murder. So God separated manslaughter and, and accidental death from murder. So verse number 4 of Deuteronomy 19, And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither, that he may live. Whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hateth not in time past, as when a man goeth into the wood with his neighbor, to hew wood, and his hand fetcheth a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slippeth from the helve, and lighteth upon his neighbor that he die. He shall flee unto one of those cities, and live, lest the avenger of the blood pursue the slayer, while his heart is hot, and overtake him, because the way is long, and slay him, whereas he was not worthy of death, inasmuch as he hated him not in time past. And all that about, uh, lest he overtake him while his hottest heart is hot, and the way be long, that was all the justification for, in verse number 3, them preparing that highway system. Make it easy for them to get to these cities of refuge. Uh, but we see here that the purpose of the cities of refuge was so that those who were just guilty of accidental homicide or manslaughter would receive a different penalty from those who are guilty of murder. And they're to, to receive a, a lesser punishment. They're to be allowed to live. We can see this also in Numbers 35. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.10 let me just mention this one read this one real quick that innocent blood the purpose of this was that innocent blood be not shed in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance and so blood be upon thee okay now let's go to Numbers 35 and verse number 10 
So Numbers 35, verse number 10. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye become over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither, which killeth any person at unawares. And they shall be unto you cities for refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer die not, until he stand before the congregation in judgment. And okay, so, again, we see this was so that the, the person who killed someone unawares, the person who killed someone by accident, uh, would have a place of refuge. Now, anyone who, who killed any man, according to the, the law established here for the city's refuge, anyone who killed any man was to receive a trial by jury to determine his innocence or his guilt. Now, it's assumed here that everyone who kills someone is going to flee to one of the cities of refuge. If he didn't flee to one of the cities of refuge, that's an admission of guilt is the way it's treated. He's automatically guilty. The executioner, that's the avenger of blood that's mentioned here, um, the, that's the executioner. And the executioner can go and arrest him and put him to death if he never fled to the city of refuge. It's assumed that he is admitting his guilt and is trying to uh, flee from any punishment at all. But everyone that uh, does not admit their own guilt by, by running from the law, they go to the cities of refuge and they all receive a public trial uh, there in the city of refuge. We can see that in Numbers 35 or 16. And if he smite him with an instrument of iron, so that he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he smite him with a throwing stone, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. For if he smite him with an hand weapon of wood, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. And all these are talking about intent. You smite him with a hand weapon of, of wood, wherewith he may die, that means with the intent of killing him. So it's all talking about intent. If you smite someone with the intent that he will die, and he does die, then you're a murderer. Uh, and you're going to be put to death. Verse 19, The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meeteth him, he shall slay him. But, on the other hand, if we look at a man uh, who's just acting out of hatred, you have verse number 20, or verse uh, 21. Yeah, verse 20. I was reading it wrong here. But if you thrust him of hatred, or hurl at him by laying of weight that he die, or an enmity smite him with his hand, that he die, he that smote him shall surely be put to death, for he is a murderer. The revenger of blood shall slay the murderer when he meeteth him. But if he thrust him suddenly without enmity, or have cast upon him anything without lying, laying of weight, or with any stone wherewith a man may die, seeing him not, and cast it upon him that he die, and was not his enemy, neither sought his arm, his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the revenger of blood according to these judgments. Okay, so here we have in verse 24 the mention of the congregation. That's trial by jury here in the city of refuge. The congregation was to gather and to determine whether this man was guilty of murder or if it was manslaughter or accidental homicide. Verse 25, and the congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the revenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of his refuge, whither he was fled, and he shall abide in it unto the death of the high priest, which was anointed with the holy oil. Okay, and so here we can see every man that comes to the, the city of refuge, they plead their case before the congregation. The congregation determines whether the man is guilty of murder or not, and 
congregation gives their judgment, and if they say, yes, you're guilty of murder, then the executioner takes them out and kills them. If they say, nope, you're not guilty of murder, it's just manslaughter or it's accidental uh, homicide, then he doesn't get killed, but he does have to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Uh, and we see that verse at the end of verse 25. We have uh, verse 26 and continuing. If they leave after that punishment, even though they're they've been, even though their life has been spared, they still have the punishment. They have to stay in the city of refuge, and that has to be their home until the death of the high priest. But verse 26: If the slayer shall at any time come without the border of the city of his refuge, whither he was fled, and the revenger of blood find him without the borders of the city of his of his refuge. And the revenger of blood killed the slayer. He, the revenger of blood, shall not be guilty of blood. Meaning it's not murder for the executioner to kill someone that uh, was only guilty of manslaughter or accidental homicide if he leaves the city of refuge. Once he leaves the city of refuge, he's subject to the death penalty. Uh, verse 28, because he should have remained in the city of his refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest... The slayer shall return into the land of his possession. So once the high priest has died, everyone that's in the city of refuge can now leave the city of refuge if they want. They don't have to. But they can now leave the city of refuge, go back to their uh, land of their inheritance and, and their family. And by the way, the city of refuge was not limited to just uh, people who were guilty of manslaughter or accidental homicide. Anyone could live there. It was just that was the place where those people had to live. Anyone else had a choice whether to live there or not. So they would, if you know, if they fled to the city of refuge and they were found guilty of, of manslaughter, uh, they would have to stay there. But most likely their immediate family would come with them. They would uh, purchase a plot of land there and start a, a you know, livelihood there in the city of refuge. So it wasn't a huge punishment, but it was a punishment that they were uh, had to suffer for causing the death of another person. Uh, executions, by the way, were to be public and personal. Let's turn it back to Deuteronomy, uh, this time Deuteronomy 17. Uh, first, we'll look at verse number 6. Skip to points, so we'll cover that in verse number six here. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. Okay, so anyone that was convicted of murder could only be put to death if there were two witnesses to that murder. And we mentioned last week, uh, if you remember, the principle of witnesses in Scripture did not just apply to people. So it's not talking about you had to have two people who were there as eyewitnesses. Um, other inanimate objects are often spoken of as witnesses throughout the Bible. Uh, most famously when Jesus says that uh, his words would be a witness against the people. Not that, not that he himself would be the witness, but that his words would be a witness against them. Uh, so it's an inanimate object, the, the written word of God, that's a witness against uh, those people who are doing wrong. Uh, in many cases throughout throughout history or throughout scripture, uh, you see these references to witnesses that are inanimate objects. So that's evidence. So you have to have at least two pieces of evidence 
to prove that someone is guilty of murder in the Old Testament. Without those two pieces of evidence, you couldn't convict them of murder, and they were to be allowed to stay in the city of refuge. Okay, but then also in verse number 7, the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put evil away from among you. So once someone was convicted of murder and given the death penalty, the people that were supposed to kill him were supposed to be first the people who witnessed against him. So anyone who gave testimony against him, this was personal. They couldn't just have this uh, idea, oh, all I did was give testimony. I didn't, I wasn't the one that actually was responsible for his death, if perhaps their testimony was false or something. Now, if their testimony was false and they got away with it, uh, they had to have the guilt of them personally being responsible for the death of that individual. And so that added another layer of protection against an innocent party, because if you knew that you were going to live with a guilty conscience the rest of your life from condemning someone to death and you personally picking up the stone and slamming it down on his head to kill him, uh, that would be an incentive against uh, telling a lie that might lead to that person being put to death. So God had many layers here of, of protection that he put in. So he had to have two witnesses and then the, whoever witnessed against the person, they were the first ones to throw the stones and and uh, put him to death. So the executions were public and personal, very personal to the witnesses. They had to be the ones to put him to death, and very public, because afterwards the hands of all the people were to be involved in, in throwing the stones and killing this person. Uh, so it's, it's very public. It was not a private thing. The purpose of the public executions was to bring fear throughout the land. We don't have time to look at that, but you can uh, look many times where executions are mentioned in the Old Testament, and God followed that with, and all Israel shall hear and fear, and so shall you put out, put away evil from among you. And so it was so that everyone else would know, if I do this, that's going to be my fate too. And they would be afraid, and they would not commit evil, and would help prevent evil from taking over the land. All right, then let's go back over to Numbers 35. <coughs> And uh, verse 31, once this trial has taken place, the murderer has been found guilty. Uh, he's been sentenced to death. God gives a warning to the judges saying that they're not to allow any lesser penalty than the death penalty. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall be surely put to death. Satisfaction, that means you don't say, okay, I'll be satisfied if you just get life in prison. You don't say, okay, the law will be satisfied if you just spend 15 years in prison, then we'll let you out on good behavior. Uh, you know, there is no satisfaction. It, it's not, I will be satisfied if you pay a fine. There is no satisfaction for anything for the, the life of a murderer. He has to be, uh, be put to death. His life is entirely forfeited. God did not allow any lesser penalty for murder other than the death penalty. Uh, verse number 32, by the way, applies that also to the person who has left the city of refuge after he's been declared guilty of murder, but or innocent of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. Uh, and you shall take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. So there's no 
No way to say, okay, you've served your time and now you're out. He had to stay there until the death of the priest. That was it. And there was, was no other option uh, for that. And the reason given for all this was, uh, So you shall not pollute the land wherein you are, for blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land wherein or which ye shall inhabit, wherein I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. This statement here about defiling the land is a very important statement for this particular uh, section of the law. When God mentions defiling the land, he's talking about natural law. He's not talking about just his law that's specifically for the children of Israel. Uh, like, for example, the uh, some of the ceremonial laws. They, they just apply to the children of Israel. There's no application to anyone else. Here, when he says the land is defiled, he's talking about a natural law. Whether God stepped in and did anything, whether God gave any command or not, murder would still, would still defile the land. And the land itself would be defiled and become unclean because of murder being allowed to take place in the land. So this is a, a natural law. The law against murder it is a, a natural law, not just a law for the people of Israel. The natural law he's referring to was given back in Genesis chapter 9. So let's turn there. Genesis chapter 9, verse number 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Okay, so this is before there were any Jews, before there were any Israelites. I mean, this is just God talking to Noah and to his sons. That's it. Well, I guess their wives also were present. But those are the, the only people. You have Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives, and that's it. And God gives them the command. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So this is a universal law, applies to all of humanity, it doesn't apply just to Israel. Okay, which that brings us to the New Testament application. In the New Testament, there is no direct command for establishing cities of refuge, for trial by jury, uh, the requirement of two testimonies from, from two witnesses, or uh, for public execution. None of those are commanded in the New Testament anywhere. But you know, then again, the New Testament doesn't really deal with those subjects at all. It's not for, forbidden. It's just not even referenced uh, in the New Testament. However, it still provides a very good example for us to follow. And in fact, our homicide laws throughout America originally were founded on the homicide laws in the Bible. Uh, followed them very closely with the requirement of the two witnesses, with the, uh, we didn't have cities of refuge in America, but we did have protection from uh, being put to death because you could be put into uh, protective custody and then appear before court before you were put to death. So there was a, a prohibition against just the executioner just going and finding the murderer and, and killing him. He had to go through a trial first according to law. So we had that similarity to the cities of refuge had trial by jury, uh, the requirement of multiple witnesses, uh, 
and originally all of our executions were very, very public, just like the executions in, in the Bible. Now, we didn't require the witnesses to be the first ones to uh, throw the stones or to, to kill the person, but it was a very public execution in order to create fear throughout the land. So originally, our homicide laws very closely mirrored the homicide laws in the Old Testament. Now, we've gotten away from that. Of course, we've gotten away from the, the death penalty, we've gotten away from a whole bunch of the aspects of the homicide law. The, the, those states that do have executions now, they're very private, and, you know, in a room, no real news media or anything there. You just have the, the, Dick, the uh, criminal and his family if they want to be there and you know, lawyers and stuff like that. And that's it. It's real private. It's not public. Uh, I think it would be good to bring it back to being public execution. People would become afraid uh, of killing others a lot more if it was public. But none of that is commanded. It's just a good example for us to follow. Uh, again, we understand that if God set up a government for people and he directly established certain laws for them, then those are going to be the best laws for those people at that time that could ever possibly be written. And so we would want to learn from those laws, and our founders did uh, learn from those laws and set up our laws to mirror them however uh, much they applied to us as possible. Now, on the other hand, the command to execute murderers applies to all people at all times and not just to the Jews. We looked at that Genesis 9-6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That applies to everyone. That, that's never been rescinded. It's uh, universal. The law to execute criminals or execute murderers is a universal law that applies to all people at all time. Now, in the New Testament, we can see that this law was never rescinded because of the fact that murder is still viewed as a prohibited act in the New Testament. So let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 and verse number 9. It's a very good verse for talking to people that are opposed to the death penalty and opposed to uh, the, the punishment of murderers. Because a lot of times they'll say, well, yes, in the Old Testament God had the death penalty, but now we're supposed to be uh, people of love. We're, the command now is, is to love each other. And so we can't kill someone in love. Well, you know, I can take them back saying... God is love, and he was love in the Old Testament, and he ordered people to be killed, and he's still love now. That means that the fact that he's love doesn't mean that you, know, you can't kill someone, especially murder. But I like to go into Romans 13, 9 for this, and we said, See, for this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So here we see, first of all, that thou shalt not kill is still seen as an applicable commandment in the New Testament, even under the law of love. There's still the commandment against murder and against killing is still applicable under the commandment for love in the New Testament. Which, by the way, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is a quote from the Old Testament law. It's, it's not just a New Testament thing. That is a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, but we also see that 
any other commandment. That includes the commandment to put murderers to death. That commandment is also briefly comprehended in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So even that commandment saying that we're to put murderers to death, that is not a violation of the commandment of love. That is included in the commandment to love our neighbors. Because by putting murderers to death, we put the fear of God in those that would commit murder, and we prevent more murders. Okay, so we see that in Romans 13, 9. We can also look at Galatians 5 and verse 21. Here we can see that murder is still seen, even in New Testament times, murder is still seen as a sin that makes one worthy of death and hell. In Galatians 5.21, we have envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so here we have people that commit murder, are not worthy of inheriting the kingdom of God. They are worthy of death and eternal torment in hell. Now, the good news, of course, is that Jesus paid that penalty of uh, death and hell and that they can still get to the kingdom of God by confessing their sin and accepting his uh, forgiveness of their sin, accepting his salvation. But in the New Testament, murder is still seen as a sin that makes one worthy of death and hell. And so this command to execute murderers is shown in the New Testament through these examples and a couple of others that it's still applicable today. It's still something that God requires of all people uh, at all times. It's not just a command that was given to the nation of Israel. So that's the, the law regarding the cities of refuge and the trial of homicides. Anyone have any questions or comments on that? And we'll look at another one real briefly. You don't happen to know what the cities of refuge were, yes. where they are. Yes, they were listed in Joshua. Joshua is the one that set them up and established them, so they are listed in the book of Joshua. I don't have the reference written down right here, but you can you can search for it in a concordance or something and, and find the, the list. And they were basically equidistant on either side of the Jordan. You have you know one in the north on either side, and one in the center on either side, and one in the south on either side, on both sides of the Jordan River. Okay. This, this issue uh, also, you know, came to light in the current events this past week. I guess the, the Pope uh, made a statement right. or something about the death penalty that he was opposed to. It. Right. Yeah, the Pope has said that uh, the the death penalty is no longer valid. Catholics, they should now oppose the death penalty. <laughs> That's a, a major, major, major change in Catholic doctrine. Uh, but a lot of people not happy with the current Pope because of things along those lines. Uh, it just goes along with the Catholic doctrine that they, they don't like people change it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't go to the Bible for anything. Right. You know, the Pope doesn't like like something changes it. Yep. Okay. Anything else? All right, we have just a few minutes, 
So very quickly we're going to touch on another one that has to do with the same topic. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 8. And this is the command to put railings or battlements across the roof of the house. Uh, the Jews, their houses all had flat roofs, and so people would go up on the roofs for the for entertainment or to rest or whatever. And there's a lot of lot of activity took place on the roof of the house. So for us, it would be similar to a porch or a deck uh, in our cultures. So they were required to put a railing around the rooftops, uh, similar to how our building codes require us to put railings around porches and decks and stairways and things. So Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, when thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house if any man fall from thence. So they were commanded to put these railings around their rooftops. Anyone who did not put the railing would be guilty of murder if someone fell off their roof and died. That's where it, what it means when it says that thou bring not blood upon thine house. And we just looked at the laws about the murderer and how murder murder brings blood upon the land and defiles the land. So this is an accidental death from someone falling off of a rooftop without a railing brings blood upon that household. And the person responsible for putting the railing on top of the house, he is then considered to be guilty of murder. And the Jews teach that this verse establishes a principle that requires the use of safeguards when any action is taken that might endanger someone else's life. So whether you're talking about the rooftop or putting uh, uh, lids on top of wells, uh, just any type of safety requirement that's necessary to prevent the loss of life, they view all of that being encompassed in this one example because they say it establishes a principle uh, that should be applied throughout all of life. Now the New Testament application, again, there's no direct command for this, but it is a very good example for us to follow, and we have to keep in mind this command is based on the prohibition against killing another man. So it's, it's based on that universal prohibition against murder. <clears throat> and it gives us an example of how to determine whether a man is guilty of violating this prohibition against murder. And so God is basically saying, you know, even though this person that died was not intentionally pushed off of the housetop, the fact that the homeowner did not take the proper safeguards means that it's the same thing as if the homeowner had pushed him off the housetop. <clears throat> and so the homeowner is just as guilty of murder then as he would have been if he had, if he had just pushed him. So it gives us an example <clears throat> of how to determine whether or not someone is guilty of just manslaughter in this case or guilty of murder in this case. And the answer is he didn't follow the proper safeguards, then he's guilty of murder. <clears throat> um, this, by the way, is a justification in our society for things like uh, building and safety codes. That we often complain about, and there's a lot of times they're a real pain in the neck to have to deal with, but, and sometimes they're just there to literally be a pain in the neck because some of those codes are passed specifically by the companies that have a lot of money wanting to influence politicians to pass those codes so that companies without a lot of money go out of business, and thus they eliminate some of their competition. That's an abuse of the law, but the law itself, the, the principle is still there 
that building and safety codes are valid. They're not a violation of God's law. I have a lot of friends who are leaning uh, anarchists, you know, libertarian slash anarchist, and, and they go on and on about building codes being a violation of God's law. And that, that, that's uh, the government forcing themselves into places where they're not supposed to be. And, you know, I, I take them back to this. Like, here you go. Here's a building code in the Old Testament that, that God established himself. So, no, building and safety codes are not a violation of God's law. They are in a continuation uh, or an extension of God's law against murder. So that's the law regarding putting your, your battlements on the rooftops. Any, any comments or questions? All right, we'll go ahead and stop there since it is time to head out. Right, Brother Ramon, why don't you close this in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we just uh, praise you, Lord, for the God that you are. We praise you for your word. We thank you.